Dr. Chuck Kelly is with us today. He is president of the seminary that initiated this ministry in Angola. We're so grateful. His wife, Dr. Rhonda Kelly, has been going to San Gabriel's, I know, and so has Christy Gibson, our minister of discipleship. And others in our congregation have been participating in this training of ministers. Clifford, whom you just saw, is now pastor of a church inside a prison in Oregon. They sent him, said, we want you to come to Oregon and establish a church and pastor that church inside the prison system. So I don't know how many pastors we have in the prison system. I'm guessing around 20 now, but I don't, here in Louisiana, that's a pretty good guess, I think, as to how many. But that's Clifford's story. And you heard Clifford's story very clearly, my life before Christ, how God spoke to me and scared me to death and saved my soul and how it's been since. And that's the story that every one of us have who know Jesus as Savior and the story that we need to tell. It's our personal story of God's grace and His activity and His love in our lives. And people need to hear it from us, from our lips. This lady that we're reading about here in the Scripture, the woman at the well, she goes back to the village and she shares her story with her village. And many of them come to faith in Christ. So you don't know how powerful your story might be. This is number seven in the series of My Name is David and I Have a Story to Tell. We have two more that we're going to share at least. This story will be uploaded on Facebook uh, probably by the time you get home or very soon thereafter. You can share Clifford's story on Facebook with your friends. Diane Villamret's story last week I think has approached 3,000 viewings. And uh, many of the stories have been seen thousands of times. So go ahead and participate that way in the sharing of the stories as well, okay? You can go on the Facebook page, First Baptist New Orleans uh, Facebook page, and find our previous stories there as well. Now, the woman at the well, this is our seventh message in a series from John chapter 4. John is telling a story. This is John the beloved disciple, when he introduces himself to the world, he says he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't know how Peter and James felt about him calling himself that, but we know that's how he called himself and how he thought of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he highlights the love of Christ and the love of God throughout his writings. And here at the well, he is emphasizing the love of Christ for this woman. Jesus says to the woman, can I have a drink? The woman says, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She responds, sir, you have nothing. You have nothing. Tired, weary, solitary man sitting by the well with no luggage. You have nothing to draw with. No bucket, no rope, and the well is deep. How are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his livestock and his children? And Jesus says, anyone who drinks this water uh, will thirst again, but anyone who drinks the water I give him will never thirst. 
But the water I give them will be in them a well of water springing up into everlasting life. She says to him then, give me this water so I won't ever have to come back here and draw. That's when Jesus makes a right angle turn in the conversation that we talked about last week and says to her, go get your husband and come back. Comes right out of the blue. And it focuses now her thinking on her own marital history, five husbands, and the man she's now living with, Jesus says, is not her husband. Jesus tells us her marital history, something that probably was a source of embarrassment and perhaps shame to her. He focuses on her moral failure, on her need for forgiveness. She listens to him as he talks to her about this, and the next word she says is in verse 19 of John 4. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus provides the first right angle turn when He says, go Get your husband and come back. We weren't expecting that in this conversation, but it identifies a great need in the woman's heart. The woman provides the second right-angle turn when she says, I want this living water, and then Jesus points to her marital history. She says something about worship. Well, I can see that you're a prophet, and she has two comments that are sort of like questions. Now, we ought to pay attention to questions. We ought to take questions seriously. Sometimes when you start a spiritual conversation, people get uncomfortable. It's just part of it. You may have a spiritual conversation with one of your relatives or a friend in a break room or on an airplane, and you start talking about spiritual things, and people can get uncomfortable. And sometimes they do like this woman did and turn the conversation to some other matters. We ought to pay attention, though, to the questions because the questions indi indicate a need in the heart. I think this woman is struggling with the identity of Jesus. And maybe part of this follow-up that she gives is because she's thinking, I wonder if he's the one. He's, he's told me this story in my life. I didn't know he knew the story, and yet he cares about me. Maybe, maybe he's the promised one. And maybe this is a question that sort of uncovers that for her. I don't know what exactly is going on in her mind, but I know we need to pay attention as people ask questions. I've had them ask the most surprising questions. When you share with them about how Christ has saved you, they may throw out something from the Old Testament, you know. Well, who do you think Cain married? 
or where dinosaurs come from. Now, people have all kinds of questions, and they're back in the back of their mind, and if they get uncomfortable in a conversation, they might throw things out like that. But we need to realize, even if we have to say, well, we'll get to that question in a while, but let me talk to you a little bit more about Jesus and what he did for me. Even if we have to say that, that question still in, is there and it indicates a need and something going on in their mind. It could be a spiritual question for them, even though it sounds like it's going in another direction. Jesus never was afraid of questions, and we shouldn't be either. Now, the woman's remarks have really two questions in them. And the first is about our ancestors. She brings up her ancestors. Now, she's already talked about Father Jacob. Are you greater than our Father Jacob who gave us this well? So she's got Father Jacob in her mind as a very great man. And she, like everybody else on the planet, thinks of their ancestors as great people. Generally speaking, that's the way we view our ancestors. Tom Brokaw has called the, the World War II generation the greatest generation. And many of us here in these United States and perhaps in Europe would nod and say that had to be the greatest generation as they faced that challenge to Western civilization and won with payment of their lives. It was a great generation. The question of who is the greatest comes up in the Bible a good bit. Jesus says that there's never been anybody greater than John the Baptist. He made that statement and he said that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Emphasizing how important the church is to the future of the world. James and John argued about who was the greatest. They thought maybe it was one of them. When I think about who is the greatest, my mind goes back to this scene here. Jesus and the woman at the well. And the generation that actually encountered God in the flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. These 12 guys, John who wrote the account, his brother James, Peter and Andrew and the rest of them, they left here to change the world. Their enemy said they turned the world upside down. The world was never the same after Jesus entered the picture and his apostles deployed to tell the story. So maybe that's the greatest generation. She had a heritage, you see, that she considered great. But even though she had these great ancestors and a great heritage and a religious heritage, it did not deliver to her living water. She didn't have living water flowing inside of her. She had a great need. Some people think that their heritage is what gives them the living water. Wrong. It doesn't. You don't get the living water by the family plan. You don't get the living water just because your grandparents were great people or your great-grandparents or your parents. The living water doesn't come from our ancestors. Jesus is challenging religious tradition as the way to have the living water. As he responds to this woman, this woman is asking about her ancestors. And she supposes that there is truth in those ancestors, and that's where the secret lies. Maybe you have followed the path of your ancestors 
all your life. And you suppose that your parents, surely, your mom and dad couldn't be wrong, and your grandparents couldn't be wrong. So you've just plodded along, just following in their footsteps, trying to do what they did. And maybe you, like this woman at the well, have never found it to be living water in the inside. All the time you've walked that path like your ancestors walked, you've never felt fulfilled in your own heart. You never really felt that close to God or that God had saved you by His grace. That's because we don't get saved because of a heritage. We don't receive the living water because of a heritage we've had some way. It doesn't come in religious tradition or rituals or rules or regulations. The living water Jesus is talking about here comes only from the man at the well. That's it. Jesus alone provides the living water. She has another question, and that's about re uh, worship and her religion. She says, you know, you Jews say we ought to worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim. So she's a little concerned about her worship, where she worships and why. And maybe she's worshipped that way all her life, but it's never really delivered anything real for her. It always felt secondhand to her, perhaps. And so she's wondering about worship. Maybe she's worshipping in the wrong place or something. And maybe you feel that way, too. Maybe you feel like, I'm not sure I'm getting the right signals about worship. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus is going to address that. Those are the two questions that surface in her mind and heart. What about those ancestors of mine, that path I've been walking all these years, and, and what about this worship that we do on a place called Mount Gerizim? Well, Jesus responds with three comments that I want you to pay attention to, all right? Because he actually speaks to the woman's right turn, okay? She says, well, what about my ancestors and what about worship? And Jesus speaks to it. And he says these three things. First of all, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Think about that for a minute. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. People can worship what they do not know. They can go to a house of worship. They can go to a place of worship. They can go through a ritual of worship and not know a thing about what they're actually doing. Paul the Apostle showed up in a place called Athens. It was a center for learning in the ancient world. There were many shrines around Athens to all these various gods that the Greeks worshipped. And one of them had inscribed on it, to the unknown God. And when, when Paul stood up to address the people who lived in that city, he said to them, you've got lots of gods here, you're obviously a very religious people. What I want to talk to you about is the God you do not know, the one you've made a shrine to, to the unknown God, that one whom you ignorantly worship. I'm declaring him now unto you. And from that point, he talks to them 
about the man at the well, about Jesus of Nazareth. We don't want to be caught in a situation where we are worshiping what we do not know. We don't want to be like this woman, just going through the motions, not really getting the meaning, and never having the living water. That would be a very sad thing for any one of us to go through, to just follow the path that everybody took, that our family took, and our ancestors took, and go through the motions of worship just like they did, though it never satisfies our soul. That would be a very sad thing indeed. We don't want to go there. Now, the second comment Jesus makes that I want you to see is this. Salvation is of the Jews. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Did you ever see that in the Bible? Salvation is of the Jews, a quote from Jesus. What's he mean by that? What's he talking about? He's a Jew. What's he mean? Salvation is of the Jews. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his book of Romans, chapter 2. And he says in there, he asks this question, what advantage then has the Jew? What advantage has the Jew? And he concludes this way. Basically, The advantage of the Jew is this. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. That's how he says it. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. That's the advantage of the Jew. To say salvation is of the Jews does not mean that none of the world religions have any truth in them. All of the people on the planet can see the stars, the moon, the flowers, the birds, their own marvelous design, and know that there is a creator, and understand that they are made by this creator, that that someone designed all that there is. That's called general revelation, and we learn a good bit about the nature of God from general revelation. So there's truth in all the different religions. You can find truth here and there. And anywhere you find truth, and it's truth, it's God's truth. But the Jews have this advantage. That thousands of years ago, God in his providence chose a human being through which he intended to reveal himself in a special way. That man's name was Abraham, and we call him the father of the faithful. And he was the first Hebrew. Now, God's promise to this man Abraham was, through you and your descendants, All of the people of the earth will be blessed. Because men and women like you and me need the concrete reality that we can see and hear 
God not only scattered his revelation through the creation, but he spoke his word to a man named Abraham, and in this way he inscribed into the experience and history of human beings a stream of his oracles, his word. Abraham, he spoke to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Joseph, and then to Moses. And through this special stream of human beings, he intended to reveal himself in a concrete way where people could see and understand. And it was never the intention that they would simply be this closed-down special group. It was always the intention that they would reveal the word and glory of God to the people all over the planet. All people would be blessed through them. To them were committed the oracles of God. So God spoke to them. He worked in them in human history to reveal himself. And he culminated this revelation, this process that he had with the Jewish people when he brought the promised one who was sitting by the well. Okay? You got to get this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, hath in this last day spoken unto us by the man at the well through his son. And his son Jesus has inherited all the promises and all the oracles that were given to the Jewish people for all those hundreds of years. In him they were embodied, and he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the Judeo-Christian heritage, all right? This is the stream of God's revelation that we understand to be his special movement of of his word among people to reveal himself through all these folks in this long history until he culminates it in his son, Jesus of Nazareth, Savior of the world. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. He himself being the culmination of that salvation history. Really, it's beautiful, isn't it? Finally, in the fullness of time, God culminated what he started in Abraham by himself becoming human in Jesus of Nazareth. It is God himself who converses with the woman at the well, who confronts her with her need, and who says to her, I can give you living water. Who cares about this single solitary individual on planet earth? This woman with such a difficult history whose name we never learn but God knows her name. He singles her out and he calls her to himself just like he calls each one of us. That's why when we know Jesus, each one of us, we have a story to tell. 
Like Clifford said, God spoke to me. It scared me to death. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. And the third thing he said is, God is looking for a worshiper. God is seeking a worshiper. God desires a worshiper. And he wants a worshiper who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, he introduces this part of his word to the woman by saying the Father seeks such worshipers. And he uses the term Father that the woman has used previously to describe our father, Jacob. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? The woman had asked him. Now, Jacob is part of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob. But I don't know if I'd rank Jacob among the great fathers that I've known. Jacob's sons were born to him by four different women. It was a blended family, and he did not love them all equally well, I will tell you. He had two favorites of his favorite wife, Rachel. They were Joseph and Benjamin. And all of the other sons knew that dad loved Joseph better than any of us. And dad always remembered Joseph's birthday, though he forgot all of ours. And he gave Joseph this beautiful quote. Finally, the tension among the kids got so great that they beat up Joseph, thought they were going to kill him, threw him in a well, and decided to sell him to slave traders on their way to Egypt. Why did all that happen? Because Jacob favored one son above all the rest. Jesus introduces to the woman a father who loves his children fully, passionately, and completely, who favors them all. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Say, Father Jacob was just a tiny shadow of Father God. When you hear Jesus say, Father, it may not make your ears uh, prick up and and think, oh, wait, he's just said something I don't know about. But for the woman at the well, this was probably a new thought. We say our Father in heaven because Jesus said, when you pray, say our Father. More than any other teacher in the Bible, Jesus taught us to call God Father. So, Jesus is teaching this woman, it's not Father Jacob, it's Father God you want to hear. It's Father God who is the great one. The Father is seeking you, and he's seeking you to worship him in spirit and in truth. That is in the spirit in the NIV. So it is capital S. Yours may have a small s. It's just the word pneuma in the Greek. Sometimes that refers to the inner spirit of a human being. And sometimes it refers to God's spirit. And you have to tell by the context. I think it's probably both in this context. It is the Holy Spirit. We need to worship God in the Holy Spirit. That is, in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to worship God with our spirit aligned with His spirit. 
so that our attitude is aligned with the Spirit of God as we come into His presence. And we must worship Him in truth. Pilate said, what is truth? And with that disdainful remark, he captured what so many people suppose, that there is no real truth in the universe. Who knows what is true? Who knows which religion? There are so many out there. How can anybody choose? And so we assume there is no truth, like Pilate assumed there was no truth. When Jesus said to the woman, you must worship the Father in spirit and in truth, I wonder if he wasn't pointing to himself. Here's the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. Here's a truth that has a body, flesh and blood. Here's the truth of the incarnate God standing before you now. Worship him in spirit and in truth. My own story includes a moment at Baylor University when, as a freshman, I was disintegrating into a puddle of tears in my dorm room about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was so troubled and so upset. And something came rumbling out of my soul in the middle of that spiritual crisis I was having, and it was this. Jesus himself is the truth. You stand here. And that call of God to stand in the truth, which is Jesus Christ, stabilized my life as a freshman at Baylor University and changed my life from that day forward and became the truth that helped me walk through the rest of my education and all of the controversies and difficulties that sometimes you experience in the world, all the trouble and heartache you experience in the world. Whenever I get in trouble, I know this, Jesus is the truth. And I put all of my life into this single confession, Jesus is the truth. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I believe he was raised again the third day. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And all of that is packaged into this moment at the well where Jesus says to her, spirit and truth, that's what God is looking for. Do you know the truth which is in Christ? Have you received that truth? Or are you still depending on a religious system or structure or process or ritual or an ancestry or heritage that you've developed and that you think in these things you will find the living water. I nearly poisoned myself this last week. I was spraying a bug barrier around a farmhouse. And I didn't realize until I'd got nearly to the end going around all the foundation that my nose was burning. I thought, wow, my nose. I've breathed this poison in. What is going to happen to me? And I started feeling weird. I cleaned up as best I could, and I went to turn the water off at the well house. I was inside the well house, and I turned the water completely off when I heard a buzzing over my head. 
and I looked up to see a nest of red wasps right above my head. So I fled the, we the well house, and I went back to the house, and I got me a can of wa wasp spray. You know the kind of shoots 20 feet? And I came back to the well house, and I reached in my hand like this, staying outside of the well house, and I turned the thing like this because it was the, the nest was right here. And I got it aimed about as good as I could, and I pressed that trigger, and it went here, and it hit the wall uh, there by the door, and it bounced right back into my face. <laughs> so I sprayed myself. <laughs> well, I'd already turned the water off. And a well house has got a red wasp nest in it that presumably now is pretty upset. <laughs> I didn't want to go back in the well house to turn the water on. So I just went to the lowest spigot in the water system and opened it up and there was enough water to wash my face off. <laughs> so that's what I did. Sometimes the stuff you think protects you poisons you. The woman at the well had that problem. She'd lived all her life thinking she was protected by her ancestry and heritage. And it never delivered for her. We hang on to this stuff so desperately, thinking it's got to be right because mom and dad and grandpa did it. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's only me. There is no other way. You must personally and individually receive Christ as Savior and place your faith in Him. And when you do, He gives you the living water that springs up to eternal life. And that's the only way to get it. There is no other. Bow with me, please. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, would you just pray this prayer, bowing your head before the Lord? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. And I receive him today as my Savior and Lord. Would you pray that prayer? knowing that God hears the faintest whispered prayer of your heart. Lord, I pray, call us back to yourself and help us find all that we seek in you. In Jesus' name, amen.